listening to Building the Village, a show that focuses on how different villagers are making an impact in the villages where they serve. Each episode features insights and practical strategies that you can use to motivate teams, mentor individuals, and maximize time and talent. I'm your host, Dr. Brandon W. Jones, founder and speaker at B. Jones Speaks, LLC. Thanks for tuning in. Listen, good morning, afternoon, evening, whenever you are choosing to listen to this episode of Building the Village. As always, I'm your host, uh, Dr. Brandon W. Jones, uh, and I'm excited today. Y'all, we are in store for a special treat. But before I dive into meeting our guest, I got to tell you all how I met my friend that I call Dex and didn't even know that was his real nickname. I just gave it to him. But I met Marcus Dexter in person a few years ago at the Behind the Whistle conference in uh, San Antonio, which was hosted by uh, Will and Lizette Goodlow. Uh, We'll have them on the show at some point as well. But I was walking backstage trying to get me something to drink. And I I see this young brother back there just feverishly studying, had books out, had his papers all on the desk. And I was like, man, brother, really studying. And he looked up and said, hey, are you Brandon Jones? I'm like, yeah. He said, man, I'm reading your dissertation right now. And I was like, you you must not have anything else to do with your life. <laughs> but then I realized he and I were already friends on social media because we had a lot of mutual friends uh, in common. And so we connected. We talked. I, I've heard him present. I've heard him speak several times since. And I'm just fascinated by Uh, this brother's journey. And so I'm so excited to introduce to some and present to others, as we say in the black church, uh, brother, (laughs) future doctor, Marcus Dexter. Man, how you doing this morning, brother? I'm doing all right. I got my life forth. That is coffee. And so I am doing great right now. That's awesome, man. Listen, why don't you do us a favor real quick? Because I I got so many questions for you. (laughs) Just start by uh, telling the folks a little bit about yourself and, uh, you know, where you're from, where you went to school and how you got to where you are today. Oh, we got enough time on here. Jump on in, brother. <laughs> uh, yes. Again, so Marcus Dexter, uh, I socially go by Dex. I use he, him, they pronouns. But if you go me by my family, it's Mooks or Mookie. And yes, it is from Do the Right Thing. Um, it is, my father had an affinity for it. Somehow, since he couldn't uh, get to choose my first name, uh, he got at least to choose a nickname. And so it just stuck. Uh, Born and raised in Philly, South Philly, not on the outskirts. I actually am from inside the city of Philadelphia. And so those who know, they know um, that means everything to us Philadelphians. And so spent most of my life at magnet schools, Um, only went to one private school for grade school, which was actually my kindergarten. And really, it was that experience of moving from private school to public school that I realized kind of would shape my future is because when I went to first grade public school, they put me in remedial class um, because they didn't believe that I actually was in a second grade reading and math level in kindergarten. Mm. And so when I started helping the teacher teach the class and pointed to the books on the shelf that apparently were advanced for the students in there. And she asked why, how have I read that? I told her why her and um, the amazing Mrs. Tatum, my first grade teacher, a black woman fought the district and school 
to get me tested for gifted and won that fight and told my mother what to do. And I got tested because I missed the screening in kindergarten and would have to wait. And so mid-year, first grade, I was then put in gifted. And so mm-hmm. got to navigate an art school from first to eighth grade, which also helped shape kind of who I am, living in Philly with the arts and going to a magnet school. Then I attended the illustrious Central High School, the second oldest continuous public high school in the nation, uh, where I made freshman varsity and track. Yes, always. Because, you know, I graduate, we're the only school that actually can confer degrees. We actually mm. have a mandate charter from the state that whatever degree the University of Pennsylvania can confer, it um, our high school can confer. And so we don't have a principal, we have a president um, in our campus. And so if you have over a 92 GPA, because all of our classes at the baseline level were weighted, you graduated with a degree. So I have a Bachelor of Arts from high school. Um, what does that mean? Well, this was before IB, so it's already like higher level curriculum. It doesn't exactly, exactly mean too much, but it does mean that at least I excelled in a certain level of accelerated curriculum. And so I like to say I have, I'm working on my fourth degree. And so right out of high school, I went to Ryder University on a track scholarship and studying finance. Was too close to home because I can get back home in like an hour and a half using public transportation. Um, and then I just also changed majors. And so from there, I transferred to Robert Morris University for my sophomore year. And that's where I ultimately graduated from. And then my senior year, I got to come down to Atlanta because my best friend was living here. Um, shout out to him as he's like, I think, currently the only black executive director of an American symphony. And so he's the executive director of the Louisiana Symphony Orchestra. So shout out to okay, Omar. Okay. Um, okay. Yes. And so um, came in there, visited him. And while I was here, I was like, well, let me check out Georgia because we always wanted to continue living near or, or with each other. Met the head coach. As soon as I got on campus here in Athens, just fell in love with it. Um, beautiful campus. Found out it's an arboretum. Um, just there was just something in the air here. And as I met with the coach, he told me to take my suit and tie off because it was 97 degrees and I was making him hot. <laughs> Good old coach <laughs> Norin. And so after that, he just allowed for me to uh, volunteer so, as long as I got in. And so I did get in for my master's here. Uh, and so that's when I was exposed to the amazing Dr. Billy Hawkins. First day of class of my master's degree, the first class I had was Dr. Billy Hawkins with his, you know, Barry White baritone voice, just nice, soft-spoken, came in and a sports sociology course. Never really knew of it, what it meant. We got to pause, Dex. We got to pause. We got to let the people know <laughs> the importance of Dr. Billy Hawkins because sports scholars like oh us, we, we know Dr. Billy Hawkins because all of us cited Billy Hawkins in in a paper or a project or in some cases dissertation like myself. But t- tell the yes. world about the Dr. Billy Hawkins because this is this this is incredible. Oh, gosh. So good old Doc, as many of us affectionately uh, call him, um, he was one of the first. He is a protege, so to say, of, drum roll, it's like, no. 
<laughs> I'm so silly. Um, he is, uh, I, I guess I want to say, is he the second lineage? I don't know if there's anyone before him. Um, but Doc wrote the book, and I don't know why I'm having a brain fart as it came back up in my head right now, probably because it's still early in the morning. Um, but he wrote the book that really kind of shaped and changed sports sociology and how the ways we look at black athletes, um, the new plantation, and the ways in which the collegiate um, athletic system, not even just relegated to just the NCAA, but Doc Hawkins really um, enlightened the world in the ways in which black athletes are being used for their bodies, for their um, talent, and just everything and how there's really just this emphasis on this performance nature, whereas a lot of effort that comes from individuals who are less melanated, so to say, um, that intellectual ability and the ways in which he really helped reshape um, and really give voice to many individuals who knew this and were trying to really emphasize the fact that we need to look at Black athletes as a whole. And honestly, even though many you know, have not seen him publish so much empirical work because that's not what Doc does. Doc mm -hmm. really gets much deeper and really helps tease out the the curiosity, intellectual aspects that lies in there. And so really the um, the book was New Plantation, Black Athletes, College Sports, and Predominantly White Institutions. Um, but he is the legacy of Dr. Harry Edwards. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. He has, if, if anything, if good old Dr. Joey Cooper is that next iteration of even them two, um, I, I'm going to say it if some haven't already. Um, but definitely, I think, uh, you know, Dr. Nefertiti Walker is definitely doing her thing in the same ways or very similar. But yeah, Doc Hawkins, just seeing him in the classroom, one, Outside of MAV, like STEM-based courses, I've never had a black male uh, as a professor, as a teacher, um, mm. and talking about concepts like this. Everything, you know, I was fortunate enough to have black male math teachers in high school, and then um, I had a black male as a biology teacher my freshman year of high school, but never have I really had a, except for the late, great Dr. Rex Crawley, one of my fraternity brothers and mentors who unfortunately passed from leukemia. Um, but Doc really just, just hearing him talk and just talking about these topics. And right when I started my master's was when the whole NC, the NBA dress code situation was going down. And so yeah. I'm just sitting there in class, like people actually get paid to talk about these things. Like you can talk about like, huh? Like that's research. Um, and so from then on, I just... I, my world was changed. My worldview, the ways in which I thought where I was going, because, you know, coming from a check and field background, everything is about coaching. I came in sport management thinking I was going to do biomechanics, but I didn't have the prereqs. Mm -hmm. So they told me to come in sport management, get the prereqs, and then switch over. But Doc changed all that. Um, honestly, it really helped really pivot where I was going in life, even though I did continue on. Um, after my master's, I was a volunteer. Well, I was a volunteer track and field coach um, with University of Georgia here, and also wound up becoming a um, recruiting coordinator and program coordinator for them during my two years here. 
and then got to step in from one of the assistant coaches while they were out on medical leave. And then I spent six years of my career as assistant track and field cross country coach and recruiting coordinator um, in upstate New York uh, for student Cortland, um, helped revitalize and shape them forward. I can't even remember my accolades, but I guess um, the best accolades was I was two time uh, United States track and field cross country coaches association, assistant track and field coach, for D3 Atlantic region back to back. Probably wow. one of the youngest. Yeah, one of the one of the youngest. I know there was a couple others there. We were around the same age, but one of the youngest, but also probably I may have been the youngest in the region back to back. But yeah, 2013, 2014. And so I can say I helped coach an, an athlete to nationals every year, every season that I was coaching. So that's about eight years. Cause I, mm. well, I was even at Georgia, I got to help out and those athletes at least made regional and national meet. And so, yeah, when I retired at 30 from coaching, um, that's what it is. And so wow. after Cortland, it was one of those pivotal moments, um, you know, with the, I can't breathe and black lives matter movement. And so, uh, black faculty reached out to myself and another colleague of mine who was a assistant basketball coach, but also working in missions and asked us to do a brown bag seminar of student athletes reactions to the, um, the whole movement and situation of I can't breathe and so forth. And, Going back and having to do research again and being in the library and being intellectually stimulated, we were just chatting and, and in the library. And I was like, this is it. That's it. And my mm-hmm. colleague was looking at me like, what? I was like, this is what I've been missing. This is the void. And I was like, I need to go back and get my doctorate. I was like, mm. it's time to go back to school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with how things were there, 2015, resigned and then moved to Fayetteville, Georgia with my cousin studied for the GRE. And then here I am back at University of Georgia and started my doctorate the uh, spring of 2016. And there's more to lead me to my new position, but I'm going to stop there so you can continue the questions. No, no, no. Because your story is incredible because the show is building the village (laughs) and your story is filled with so many villagers that have just poured into you, whether it was your father uh, your family, your your first grade teacher, then on to, you know, Ryder and then Robert Morris. Like you have just been blessed and touched by yes. so many people. And then to have, you know, crossed paths with and had the chance to, as I like to say, sit at the feet of the <laughs> Dr. Dr. Billy Hawkins. And then when you think <laughs> about Dr. Hawkins's impact on black sports scholarship, uh, who I myself am uh, heavily influenced by. And then I had yes. Dr. Crystal Beeman on my yes. uh, dissertation committee at the University of Texas at Arlington, who was heavily influenced oh, uh, by Dr. Hawkins's research. And, and, you know, and her research spawned even more folks doing this work. And so I just, it's incredible just thinking about the, you know, like how some preachers say, you know, you look at people's coaching tree and people's preaching tree, (laughs) you know, in the academy, folks be sleeping on the fact that like, yo, in the academy, we've Mm -hmm. got good scholarship gives birth to great scholars at times too, man. So I just, I want to give you a chance to, to talk about that, but also 
I, I do want you to just, you know, talk a little bit more about that work that you're doing at the University of Georgia, because, you know, folks don't, don't know this. You know, you you win in some awards down there. Every time I oh, look gosh. up, the <laughs> University of Georgia is awarding you with something. I'm like, man, this dude getting all these awards and, you know, I'm like, you getting recognized. You, you in athletics, yeah. you in the academics, student affairs. Talk to us about the work that you're doing there at the University of Georgia right now. Yeah, so uh, currently I'm the assistant director for student initiatives within our Office of Institutional Diversity. Um, I also serve as our interim director for our Afro-American Male Initiative, which is the game program, game spans for Georgia Afro-American Male Experience. Um, And through that program, we're working to really push the needle in terms of the um, retention, progression, and graduation of Black men. But also as a kind of charge from our university president um, to see how we can utilize the program to also attract more Black men to attend the University of Georgia. And so um, that's my everyday job. I'm, I'm still in the process of finishing this dissertation. It is a journey. You know, COVID and everything else that was going on the past two years has affected us all in many ways. But I understand it's 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 a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, so those of you who are going through this doctoral journey, like, do not rush. Do not rush. You know, Louder. some of us, like, the quality. I, I've always been taught that, and I'm fortunate, speaking of village, like, you know, a lot of times people and people I'm talking about, a lot of them have been, you know, black. But um, Dr. Paul Shemp, he is an expert on expertise, um, especially around like coaching, leadership and um, sport pedagogy. And he has an eye for just recognizing talent. And I say that mm-hmm. because I was in his research methods course. And just by the way I ask questions did he realize that I was had a, a high level intellectual curiosity and poured into me. He just asked me at the class and connected with me, and he's been like a mentor ever since. I am part of their sport instruction research lab. But, mm-hmm. I mean, just someone who just, I mean, every time everything's going on, we talk about various books, activists, what's going on in the world. He checks in. Um, he is my co-chair as well. But talk about a village. Um, it it really does take a village. And so um, when I knew I was coming back, I hit him up, too, because he really helped get me set up. And um, unfortunately, Doc went to Houston right when I got here. But <laughs> at the same time, it yes. Well, I told when he told me, I told him, that's fine, because you're still going to be on my committee. Um, okay. I didn't ask him. I told him. He laughed because okay. he knew I was serious. Um, but that's Doc. Like he's mild mannered, but he's gonna do what he whatever he can to help. And so I guess the importance of village has been everything for who I am. And I try to model that. But here at Georgia, yeah, I I came in with an a strong intention of not only getting my degree, but to discover what I wanted to do, what impact I wanted to have um on the world and society. But also I came in telling people. I'm going to do everything I can to stay. Um, mm. I told them this is where I want to be. Um, Georgia's a special place. It's special to me. It helped shape my career. I do not want to leave if I don't have to. And it just lucked up. I started off as a, you know, obviously I was doing the teaching the PE courses here as part of my assistantship. 
I then taught a lecture course and got the assistantship here within our office as the grad assistant, working with a couple of yield programs. But ultimately for my job, um, really we look at the work as access, success, and engagement. Mm -hmm. And so primarily historically underrepresented students. And so um, we are a unit within our provost's office, but we reach everything. Um, And our vice provost, Dr. Michelle Cook, um, for Diversity and Inclusion Strategic University Initiatives, who serves as our institution's chief diversity officer, she's just poured into me. Um, I was president of our graduate professional scholars, student org, which is GAPS, which is essentially like the student organization for students of color that are graduate professional students. Um, and honestly, I just found my way to navigate opportunities and positions I knew that okay, I need to have student leadership. And really that position came up because the person who was president had a family situation and had to resign as president and they did a election. And I wanted to be president, but I realized there's a gap. Um, one, the gap is this position, but two, there's a gap. There's not many black men that are involved in, in leadership positions, especially in the graduate level. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I came here, I'm like, where where are we? Um, I know there's a crisis, but where are we? And so I said, well, they're not going to come out if they don't see that we're here. And so I said, let me run now. Let me go for this. So that way other black men can see me out here. Um, yes, it also served the purpose of helping me navigate and connect with individuals that are really strategic and administrative levels. But I did it because one, the org needed someone to step up. But two, I knew that if, if black men were going to come out and see that there are black men here thriving, I had to step up and do it, or at least be one of the people. And so... I did that, and yeah, honestly, that was honestly the what helped catapult me to that. I've yes, I've won some awards for the work. Our president fulfilling uh, fulfilling the dream award, which really is named after Dr. King and his work that he has engaged in throughout his life, and in honor of mm-hmm. him and those who are really trying to, in a sense, cultivate like a beloved community, uh, mm-hmm. not just here within UGA, but also within like the world, and so. That was amazing. And some other things that I can't even remember because I try not to keep track of them. The CV knows I don't. Um, this man is humble flexing, y'all. He is really <laughs> humble flexing. It does. That's what I love I, about I, you, Dex. That's what I love about you, man. <laughs> it's about the students. And I learned that. I mean, honestly, it started off with, a, I mean, obviously in my past, but the coaches here at Georgia when I was here, like like Coach John Stewart, who's now at Southern Mississippi, Coach uh, Wayne Norton, who's retired, um, Coach Tanya Lee, who's changed careers. Like they all instilled in me like this notion of like not only humanity and humility, but being like athlete centered. And it's bringing in like what are morals and moral character and how you embed it. It's yes, it's performance and yes, it's doing well, but what about the athletes? And so I carried that into me as a coach and others throughout my life poured into me. And so through that, that's how I go about the work. Like I get tired and those who work in any sort of higher ed position know it gets draining, but you, you, this is my passion word. People are like, why are you always talking about work and work this and that and that? And I'm like, because it's what we I do. love what I do. Like, I, I enjoy it. I mean, I, I do also work at our bookstore, but I navigated that to where 
I get to help our director, um, store director, and like navigate various strategic opportunities between mm-hmm. the store and the campus. And so that's just the thing is I've always been taught like you've got to be strategic. Yes, for mm-hmm. yourself, but you know, for a greater purpose. And for some, that may be some sort of faith-based connection. For others, it may just be personal or academic. But you know, find find your why. You know, when you mm-hmm. come back, they always tell you in this program, like, what is your why? Yes, sir. I had a giant post-it note up, and I would write it, and it was always in front of my desk, and yep. it was a reminder to me. And now, like, my why's change. And so mm-hmm. full transparency of this doctoral journey, like I, I question why am I finishing it? Am I finishing it for me? Am I finishing it for others? Am I finishing it because of the work? And I had that honest conversation myself because Good. when you think about it so much, yeah, if you don't acknowledge it, it'll eat away at you and you got to question yourself. And it's even like your work. I question why was I still at a job that I was not happy with? Well, if I don't have that conversation with myself, I'm going to stay in the job I'm not happy with and I'm not going to take action to leave. And so um, this is a time where talking to myself, even out loud, sounding crazy, all these times have been beneficial to me because I acknowledge my insecurities. I acknowledge the fact that I'm not perfect and don't believe Mm -hmm. it. But I've also been instilled with this notion that um, imposterism doesn't exist because I can never look at myself as an imposter. If I don't Mm -hmm. believe and allow anyone to ever treat me that way, how can I fall victim to it? Because it doesn't exist. Perfectionism doesn't, in a sense to me, doesn't exist. And imposterism doesn't exist because I can never be perfect, but I'm never an imposter because I'm fully me. Mm, mm. That's the word. That you know what that's a you know what there's you know I me mean? like a good phenomenologist uh, mm-hmm. there's there's the title right there <laughs> being yes. fully me I love that mm. before I take us uh, in another direction here one of the things yeah. I like that you said was the fact that like because some people are gonna listen to that and go well wait there's all this research Dex about. Yeah imposter syndrome and how it disproportionately affects people of color. But what I heard you say was this was your way of redirecting and turning it into an affirmation. And I might've just mistakenly led the question there, but that's what I heard. Was I correct in hearing it that way? No, definitely. Yes. I've, I've always like in so many ways, never realized, especially the arts and how being in Philly is shaped that, you know, acknowledging that, yes, I grew up in South Philly near Old City, so I am traversing neighborhoods that were probably built on the labor of my ancestors and mm. who were enslaved. But, and I was, you know, the one plane from 9-11 that was headed towards Philly, that's set seven and a half blocks from my house. So wow. I've had various, like, I've navigated very large experiences, but... For me, what it is is that I acknowledge what, you know, imposter syndrome and imposterism causes. I'm getting anxious. I'm getting anxiety. You know, Mm. I am doubting myself or those things come up. And so it's not to say that we aren't, you know, we aren't disproportionate. We aren't treated by way. There isn't space made for us in these institutions. That's, I allow people to believe what you want to believe and acknowledge. But for me, I'm going to acknowledge that I'm getting anxiety. I'm starting to doubt myself. Mm. But it's not. I'm not going to give power to what the 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 root of imposter in the sense of I'm not going to give power to whiteness. 
And just because someone is white doesn't mean that they're trying to perpetuate white supremacy. But at the same time, I'm not going to acknowledge that. I'm going to exist. I don't want to say outside that. I'm going to navigate my way through that. Mm -hmm. It's just like, you know, going into, you know, driving through somewhere in the world and there's a storm. You've got to find ways. Yes, you may hydroplane. The wind may push you this way. There's going to be all these obstacles you have to navigate through. I'm acknowledging. Okay. Well, if the roads are icy, let me drop gear. So there's more traction or I can take better control. And the same thing, if I'm getting anxiety, let's pull back. You know, if I'm mm. starting to doubt myself, all right, let's change gears, you know, and, and utilize that because I acknowledge I can't continue how I was mm. because how I am in that moment is something that is not healthy. It's not good. So I need to alter my state and alter how i'm going through this situation you spoke you are speaking an entire (laughs) word dex like that is oh my gosh that right there for everybody listening out there like this is this is why i wanted this brother on the show this is why uh this is one of those things man there's so many of us out there who would just try to trudge through and try to push through. And I remember going through that, you know, because mm. I finished my PhD before the year before you started yours. And I just mm-hmm. remember reaching those points where it's like, what is this? And wh- yeah. why, like, oh my God, imposter syndrome, all these things. And then I didn't get my anxiety diagnosis, as my audience knows, until last year during COVID. Mm. But in doing the therapy, mm-hmm. we're, we're unpacking and realizing man, you've been carrying this your whole life. It's just, we didn't have a vocabulary for it. And so now that we do, how are we going to redirect this? How are we going to put strategies Mm -hmm. and skills in place? And what I've heard you so eloquently say is I'm not going to give power (laughs) to these things because I don't like who I am in those moments. And so I'm going to take this and I'm going to flip it. Oh, Mm, you, you just blessed me. I don't, now, you know, that's the beautiful part about doing this show. If don't nobody else get blessed at the episode, I, I always get to because I get to have the conversation. So, yep. man, I'm appreciating this. Let's transition real quick because I want to talk about you've got a product line with uh, Black Sports Scholars Matter. And yeah. I want to talk about the importance of not only your product line, but the fact that it's true. The statement Black Sports Scholars Matter. Yes. Where'd that come from? And tell the folks why it's important to understand that <sighs> black sport scholarship matters too. <laughs> All of that. You know, so a lot of that, the, it, it honestly did start when that whole NASM situation or the, the, the panel came up um, where, you know, understanding that there are these spaces and while we may be involved in these mm-hmm. organizations and institutions, mm-hmm. but we're not as valued. Um, I've always heard the narrative about NASM, no disrespect to them at all. But when all, all the people I know, for the most part, and there's a commonality between how they identify um, and characteristics of who they are, that speaks volumes to me. You know, I'm a former technical coach, so I pay attention to little things. I'm very analytical. So that was one thing. And it made me reflect even back on, you know, being in my master's and almost doing doctorate and, and you know, being involved in NAS then a little bit. And even while my doctoral journey, like mm-hmm. people just 
complete, not full understanding, you know, sociologists, unless you come from a full sociology background, Mm -hmm. don't truly fully acknowledge sports sociology at times. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, black scholarship is always policed and politicized in various spaces. And it's, I just got tired. I'm like, it's one of those moments. It was like, why am I, how am I, how and why? Like, I didn't want to come in and be another critical race scholar. I told Hawkins that. He's like, mm-hmm. when he's asked me, what do you want to research? We actually did think, talk about imposterism in a sense. But it's like, I don't want to be another critical race scholar. Like, I don't want to be pigeonholed. I know what's going to come with being another one. There are already so many people. Like, I got to do me search. And, you know, I can talk, I'll, I'm sure I'm going to get to talk about my me search. But for me, with the Black Sports Scholars Matter, one of my close friends is... Um, the co-creator of the Black Lives Matter in higher ed. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I thought about like, how can I make my mark? I don't want to do what they did. I don't want to, um, you know, really kind of follow suit and get on that whole bandwagon. Um, but what can I do? And so I just went on to Teespring and I was like, you know, Black sports scholars do matter and wanting to have something because, you know, to speak completely to what I am, I'm a black sports scholar and Mm -hmm. it's not the typical, you know, I navigate, I'm not full sport management, even though my background is in that. I'm not full sociology. I'm not full X, Y, and Z. I'm a sports scholar Mm -hmm. and sport management as a whole needs to really acknowledge the fact and even sports sociology, like Sports studies, you know, many times we talk about sport management, but it's sports studies. And so for me, it was important to have some identity to that. And so I created it. And what I did was it's like, I don't like I don't do things for money, really. I don't care. I do it for happiness. And so like I haven't even touched the revenue. Um mm. that money that however many whatever people have bought, just letting y'all know, I haven't touched anything. Um my plan for that is once it's out, any revenue from that, I was gonna use to support other um, black scholars and mm-hmm. not relegating to just because they are black. If you're doing scholarship on black athletes and so forth, like it mm-hmm. still counts. Um, and I was fortunate enough to have someone I paid for their um, registration fee for, I mean, their membership fee for NAS. And mm-hmm. I had them in my session that proposed. And so what I want to do is provide an opportunity that can give back and so I paid all that with my money um, and just provide opportunities for black scholars. And NASA is the National Academy of Sports Medicine? Nope. The North American Society for the Sociology of Sport. Gotcha. 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 Okay. So that's a professional org. I'm about to transition as the Diversity Conference Climate Committee Chair. Mm-hmm. All these acronyms in higher ed drive me crazy. You busy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. So, but yeah, so that's where that really came from. And importance really is the fact that, you know, one, we have to affirm ourselves as sports scholars and acknowledge the fact that Mm. no matter what, there's not going to be an opportunity for us to always have a safe or brave space for us in these large institutions where Mm -hmm. for those of us, for those who are going into the academy as faculty and so forth, where our scholarship is not really going to be fully valued, you know? There's always going to be some. It's always going to be critiqued, and it's always going to be looked at with this lens that isn't necessarily tied to our experiences and our identities. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I made sure I had the D nine colors, like mm-hmm. even others, like whoever you are, separate babies, phone cases, pillows, canvas. Yeah. I wanted people to be able to show off the the fact that they are a black sports scholar and be proud of it. And 
you know, have quick people question it. What do you what, black sports gods? Oh, because you know, outside those spaces, they don't know. And then you're like, oh, like, oh, you research black sports? Like, well, tell me more. And like, it's I want like my goal in life is to help you know bridge through communication in some sense, like. Mm-hmm. We communicate in so many ways, verbal and nonverbal and other uh, various ways. And so, you know, there has to be an understanding. We don't understand it. We got to talk to each other in some sense. Right. Not always, but being able to and being willing to and when we actually had the capacity to. All right, Dex. So before I let you get out of here, man, uh, first off, you just preached a whole word on why folks need to put some respect on why we do what we do and what it is that we actually do as black sports scholars. Before I let you get out of here, I gotta talk to you about when you talk about I cook for me. If you follow Dex on any social media, you see this brother hooking up some fantastic dishes. And I'm talking from scratch, y'all. Like, he ain't going to Publix (laughs) buying these things. Like, this brother is out there cooking and making the sauces and the marinade and all of that from scratch and i'm jealous everybody in the jones house peeps what you up to and be like when you gonna do that brandon i'm like i'm not so (laughs) talk to us about where you fell in love with cooking and just why you place so much emphasis on cooking for yourself yeah no so um our family especially women like cooking is everything and so I've been like, especially on my dad's side of family, once you can see the food cook and see the fire burn, you cook for yourself. And I grew at the same pace as women. So ever since I was eight, I learned how to cook and cook for myself. And it was chopping up hot dogs, cutting up potatoes for French fries and eating, making pancakes and scrambled eggs. Like that's what I started with. But, um, you know, I've always been enamored by cooking and loved food on both sides of my family like that's how we all come together and so for me where the i cook for me and it's letter i cook number four and then me me is my screen name um and where that came from was when things weren't going as well at the previous job of coaching and i just wasn't enjoying a lot of stuff like cooking became my self-care um, and it provided me the opportunity to just be still and be in the moment, to not think about what happened, not think about what's about to happen or all the things going on. I got to be in the moment and just focus. Um, and so that's where it came from. And it's what it really means. It's like I cook for me, meaning that it's it, it's my self-care. It's wellness. It is part of my mental health um, and stability. And so eventually what I wanted to do with that platform is when I had the time (laughs) laughing um, is to really have it be a platform for people to talk about what cooking means to them and how it's important. You know, culturally food and cooking is important. We come together through food. We communicate through food. um, We share our history and our stories through food. And so, you know, it, it just gave me a chance. And then also I was broke like making about 40K mm. living in upstate New York and car payment and everything else. And I'm like, okay, well, I ain't got the money to really be going to all these restaurants. So, you know, let me figure out how to cook it myself. And so, you know, really I, there was Chef Robley in those shows, but honestly, Chef Ramsey was the most inspirational to me. Kept it simple, kept it real, 
Um, no glitz and glam, just a love for food, a love for the process. And so I've been able to do that. And it's, I, I, I learn more about cultures that way. It, it, I pick a different country or culture and I go through and I'm like, all right, what do they make? What's a staple dish? One of my uh, students is Brazilian Nigerian, but he grew up in Brazil. So I asked him what's some staple dishes. And so he told me about moqueca. And so I made moqueca and had him try it because he can't cook. And he'll acknowledge it and it reminded <laughs> him of home. And that's one of the best feelings was and then someone else is Brazilian to that I know of and the process and just having people just acknowledge it, but then to bring some semblance of home for him meant so much. And so for me, that's really what it was about and what it came to was, you know, how do I take care of myself for some? Because I tried knitting and it made me very angry, crocheting, <laughs> simple minded. Yeah, I still got needles and supplies just sitting in the bag for like a decade. Uh, yes, for those who's crocheting all power to you, I don't have the patience. Um, but cooking, I, I throw down, but it's for me. And it's not to be greedy or selfish all the time. It's just a way for me. To, you know, I always tell people, you know what my mental state's like, but how much I cook if it's not a holiday. Um, but also that's the thing too. I would escape home during the holidays and I go right to my aunt's house and help cook. Mm -hmm. And so it just, it reminds me of home at times. It, it, it brings back and elicits some amazing memories, but at the same time, it keeps me stable. Man, Dex, I wish, listen, I, I can already see that once this dissertation is done, I'm a, I got to get you back on the show because, oh my gosh, there's just so much more we could just nerd out and talk about. And so I just want to say, I appreciate you for taking the time and hanging out with us this morning. Um, how can the folks who are interested in learning more about you uh, and the work that you're doing, how can how, how do you prefer people find out more about you or access you as you're comfortable? Yeah, with? so I have a website, MarcusRDexter.com. That's M-A-R-Q-U-E-S. It's Marcus, not Marquise. There's no I in my name or E at the end. It's MarcusRDexter, like Dexterslab.com. Um, but I'm also on social media. So Marcus Dexter is all my social media handles. Um, and that's the easiest way. I mean, even my email is Marcus at MarcusRDexter.com. And so definitely feel free to reach out, even to chat, social media. I mean, that's how I met you. And originally, before we physically met, I mean, so many people, you know, uh, good old Joy down oh, there, yeah. too. I saw I met her, became one of my closest friends is through social media. And so... You got questions you want to connect, don't be afraid to reach me. Um, or at Georgia, you can just search my name and I'm sure a page and email will come up. And so um, definitely reach out to me, connect with me. I love learning more about others and supporting others and the work they do because I'm only here because of people doing the same. Well, listen, thank you all so much for tuning in to this episode of Building the Village. Take care of yourselves and each other. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Building the Village. To catch the next episode, be sure to follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. The show was hosted and produced by me, Dr. Brandon W. Jones, and edited by Lydia Fortuna.